Hello and welcome to How to Win the Lottery, Season 2, Episode 10, The Secret History by Donna Tart. I'm Joey Lewandowski. It's your boy Shreds. Oh, Shreds is back. I came to Shred. Shreds is back. Welcome back, Shreds. You thought you'd saw the last of Shreds. I wasn't sure. Yeah, he's here. I didn't know Shreds was going to come back. I don't know if he was going to grace us with his presence once again, but here you are, Shreds. Here you are, Shreds. Kick flipped his way into the room. And into our hearts. The Secret History is, I think, the third book this season that you and I had both read previously. Is that correct? I have no idea. But I, I, I know that I, I definitely recommended it to you on a previous occasion that you'd read it. Virgins, we both read. Sure. A recommendation of yours. I mean, most of the most of the books we're talking about here, if I've read them, are via you. Yeah. For multiple reasons. Uh-huh. We also both read Endzone. Okay. And we also both read this book. Okay. And that's the last one this chapter, this season. There's cats everywhere. <laughs> I felt a cat, but I'm sitting in a chair and I, I just felt a cat, but two palms on the back of my head. <laughs> There's another cat in my lap right now. I am allergic to cats. <laughs> God, God bless these weird animals. All right, let's let's act more professionally, Dana. For God's sake, there's a hot mic on. You're making a fool of me. <laughs> anyway, Secret History is, I think, the second longest book this season. We got our longest coming up in a few books. The instructions by Adam Levin. But this is one that when we were putting together the season, you were like, we got to do this because it's like this is a seminal campus novel. And I was like, I kind of literally just read this. Yeah. And like, it's long. Uh-huh. And I'm glad I reread it because I did like it. I liked it a lot. And I sort of, you can read it quicker having read it. But, you know, to read a 600 page book twice in like two and a half years or two years, maybe, maybe not, maybe like less than two years. Yeah. It's a lot. Sure. I think, I think, uh, Giles is longer in Secret History. Oh, right. I forgot about Giles already. Actually, uh, yeah, Giles is 750 pages. Art of Fielding was 500, too. So we had a, we had yeah, a couple. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a, long, a long year. And plus there's 15 instead of 10. It's a long, it's a long season in a yeah. lot of ways. So this is Donna Tartt's first novel she also wrote. <laughs> Cats are assaulting me. <laughs> I, I'm going to lock them up for now. <laughs> Like this, they're just jumping on me from all sides. I mean, I I I love them. I'm not, you know. No, no, no. I know. <laughs> that all the cat content is done now. They usually get wound up at night, but like there's there's more going on tonight than there normally is, and so okay. Yeah, they're not used to guests, really. So Donna Tart wrote the Goldfinch. Which became a movie a couple years ago. Was that is that what it's called? The Goldfinch? Sure. You don't know? Yeah, I think it's called The Goldfinch or The Golden... It's a gold bird. Golden Sparrow. The, no, yeah, the Goldfinch. Yeah. The Goldfinch. She also wrote The Little Friend, but this is her first novel. I know that you read the wiki because I know you always read the wiki, but I'm going to just... Sum- <laughs> I did not read the wiki. <laughs> I know. That's your one job and you don't do that. <laughs> this was a huge hit when it came out. Yeah. Her first novel. Was it 1990? I think so. Let's take another look. 92. 92. Okay. So normally people's first novel, they order 10,000 copies They or they pre-ordered 75,000. They're just like, this is going to be a big book. Wow. And it worked. And then, which is which is an interesting gamble because it's so long. Yeah. And Sid's been credited as popularizing the growth of the dark academia literary subgenre. So, okay. What else is in that subgenre? I don't know. <clears throat> they have tried to make this into a movie since the book came out. Yeah. I think they've given up on it because I think she said, I'm not doing it anymore. Oh, interesting. But Alan J. Pacula tried, he got the publishing rights. Or the, the, a bit past his prime by 1992. But the year, 92, he got it. And it was, Joan Didion was going to write a screenplay. Uh, that sounds good. And they were going to start work in 98, but Pacula died. Yeah, because he was fucking a million years old, probably. He died in a car accident. Because old people can't drive. <laughs> And then she wrote The Little Friend in 2002. Yeah, not great, that book. They were like, oh, right, she wrote a better book that we haven't adapted. Let's adapt that guy. So Miramax, 
Harvey Weinstein was like, let's make that book. It was going to be Jake and Gwyneth Paltrow were going to be the leads, I guess, probably as Charles and Camilla. Yeah, not the leads of the of the novel. But <laughs> the headed by siblings, Jake yeah, and Gwyneth Paltrow. Right. Oh, Charles and Camilla. Yep. Jake, but, fame, Jake Paltrow, the famous Jake Paltrow. Who has done? Uh, I will what direct co-directed a Brian De Palma documentary and nothing else. I've never heard of him before this paragraph. Yeah, their father Bruce Paltrow died, and so yeah, like, Bruce Paltrow, creator of uh, Saint Elsewhere. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And so then they're like, "Well, we can't do this now." And then it's a cursed project. Old men keep dying. In so car at that accidents. point, did he die in a car accident? I don't know. Doesn't uh, say. Yeah, don't look it up. We'll just assume he did. Yeah. And so the, the, the rights went back to Donna Tart, and then the Goldfinch, she wrote the Goldfinch, and they're like, right, the secret history, we haven't done that yet. So they're like, all right, let's do this again. Melissa Rosenberg and Brett Easton Ellis, who both went to school with her. Yeah, that's weird. We're like, hey, let's make a TV show about it. Mm-hmm. And then that fell through because they couldn't find anybody interested. Wow. All right. And then the Goldfinch was adapted, and Donna Tart's like, this movie sucks. I don't like this. I'm done. I'm no glad more. she felt that way. I didn't see that movie, but I'm, I'm glad that she was just like, yeah, fuck it. She fired her longtime agent over the Goldfinch, the movie, wow. and said, quote, once the book's out there, it's not really mine anymore. My own idea isn't any more valid than yours. I begin the long process of disengaging. Okay. Yeah. She's right. I mean, I, I just recently read, I don't, we're talking a lot about stuff that's not about this book. Well, I right think, the, right but I think top. we talk about the adaptations toward the end of the episode or the middle of the episode or whatever. And I think there's a reason to bring it up is because it seems so easy to adapt. Yeah. Um, I, I recently read uh, uh, The Devil's Candy, which is a book about the making of Bonfire of the Vanities. Yes. And there's something that Tom Wolfe says in that book that's really interesting because they, they adapted his very good novel into a very shitty movie. And there are a lot of really, really talented people that made that movie and it just didn't work out. It didn't. It, it ended up being bad for a lot of different, for a million different reasons. But Tom Wolfe is like, I don't care. If they make a bad movie, no one blames the writer of the novel right. on, the, on the bad movie. And if they make a great movie, the writer gets credit. Either way, book sales go up. And also, I think people by now, and I don't know if 92 was the same way, but by now people are just like, oh yeah, like the book's always better. Like there's that sentiment now, or yeah. like you can adapt things. Or when you like, what we found, I think, from doing actor podcasts is that whenever a movie like doesn't work and feels weird and mm-hmm. it's just like why didn't this work you're like it's almost always because it's based on a book right that like yeah. there's some there's some indescribable quality about movies that when they don't work but like it's not clear why it doesn't work it's because oh a lot of characterization and background and plot development and character development or whatever was just excised to turn a 600 page book into a two-hour movie or whatever right. yeah. so which is an, an inherent inherent problem i know that's something that you said was that you feel as if um, Secret History is a little bit long, right? Like you could yes. probably take out 200 pages. Or I don't so. know where to take it out, but I yes. Um, I think I, I I feel that when I'm reading it because it does. It feels like a very long read, but at the same time, all of the like dull moments, the like down moments, the because you you know what you would take out uh, is him almost freezing to death. That's the only part of the book that has nothing to do with the plot, really. But. You, it's happening while other important things are yeah, happening. Yeah, it's inc- it's inc- it's actually like incredibly important, but plot wise, sure. it's just like it, that's also it, only like forty pages. That's yeah, that forty pages is a lot of pages. It is a lot of pages, and and it's him by himself. You lose all of these other characters for the most part. Like in a movie, you would just go like he went home for holiday break. Yeah, or 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 you would say like oh I was uh, you know you you would cure it in, in in like two lines of voiceover, and then Henry would show up and be like there to rescue him and that's and that's it but like in the in the novel it's it's 40 pages of him being by himself which is like arguably the most visceral part of the entire book that's the one thing i remember so before we go further about it bob what is the secret history about uh it's a book about richard papen um a poor kid from california who uh decide uh finds that he has an academic proclivity to languages so he goes east to a prestigious New England school. Hampton College. Uh, in Vermont. Um, Hampton is a stand-in for Donna Tartt's alma mater of Bennington. While there, he falls in with a group of classic students who are taught by the sort of mysterious and mercurial Julian. Um, and these these classic students have a 
very, very tight, closed relationship. Uh, they don't really let outsiders in. Everyone on campus sort of thinks of them as weirdos. And uh, we come over the course of the novel to learn that that reputation is founded. I think it's somewhat about like the dangers of isolationism, right? Kind of. Yeah, I, I have a like a really hard Marxist view on this on this uh, text. I think there, there, can you, there's can you summarize or what is Marxism? Uh, Marxism is an analysis of the material conditions of a work of art and a uh, how those material conditions influence the actions of the characters and the, the people within the narrative. Okay. So we can talk we can talk more about like how that Marxism plays out within within the the uh, context of the book. But I think it's I think it's there. I think it's like one of the like essentially this is like a, a poor boy fish out of water story. Yeah. And there are levels to the various poor boy fish out of water stories in it. Like Richard is the main character and the main fish out of water, but Bunny is the next person who is like also isolated via money. Yep. And then they th- these characters just get wealthier as as you go on, and it's no mistake that um, Bunny is the one that gets killed because of his obnoxiousness. But it's also because he doesn't really fit in, and the reason he doesn't really fit in is because he doesn't have uh, money, and he admires them in certain ways because they do have money, and he uh, feels lesser than they. Like he he there's a vindictiveness to his personality because he is inferior to them. Right, I think. This brings up, it's not about the money thing, but I think the most interesting choice made by Donna Tartt in this is the way that she includes and the way that the characters treat Richard. Because he is in the inner circle, but he is very clearly not in the inner inner circle. That not only is he not part of the, like, Bacchanal or whatever, yeah, but at one point he finds out that Henry, after they murder Bunny... He finds out that Henry was going to pin it on him. So, like, he's in, in a way that almost no one else is. Right. But he is not really in. And I think narratively and in terms of plot and in terms of suspense and in terms of everything, the reason the novel works is because of his positioning within the group and within the school as a whole. Yeah, well, he's he's an outsider um, who, as an outsider, has more access um to the outside, like he he has yes. access to Judy Poovey and to to other people. Which, by the way, Judy Poovey, best character, <laughs> She's, might be the first A on our list. First um, female A. I do want to bring up a text that you sent me. Uh oh. The woman in the secret history that Judy Poovey is based on was best friends with a person who was a costume designer in Succession. The costume designer in Succession has based the way Shiv Shiv Roy dresses on the girl Judy Poovey is based on. Shiv Roy equals Judy Poovey. Yeah, this is there was a Vanity Fair there was an, a Vanity Fair article that was entirely about that, which seems really odd. That like, well, this book was a phenomenon. Succession's a phenomenon. Yeah, but it feels weird to to reach back specifically to like uh, you and me. Yeah, to, but it's it's like reaching back twenty five years, more than twenty five years, right? Almost 30, 30, 30, years. 30 years. Thirty years today. Literally thirty years. Not today. This year. Yes. Reaching back thirty years to yep. to like something else. It's it's fascinating. And actually, before then, because we're actually talking about like nineteen eighty five. But I also I do think that that college and this class has left an impression on art in a way yeah. that like. Nobody else gives a shit. Like, at a certain point, nobody cares. Like, like we're doing a whole season on campus in college, but, like, no other college, as far as I can think of, like, has influenced a specific sphere of art in a way that, like, this group of writers. Right. Brady Stanellis, Donatart, Jonathan Latham. Um, McInerney? Or no? No. He was just contemporary. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's But, like, that's crazy. Yeah, uh, there's an entire podcast about it called Once Upon a Time in Bennington. Um, you also, oh yeah, that started recently, right? Yeah. But you also have an idea for a Bennington-based sort of Netflix series. Is it Bennington-based? Oh, well, no, it's 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 like, because uh, all of these characters intersect, right? Because Hampton College is the same as Camden College, which is the, the college from Brady Stanellis's, uh Rules of Attraction, which is a book that we probably should have read for this, um, but I... You had just read that recently. Hey, man, didn't stop this one. I know, but this feels more seminal to to the genre than, sure. than that does. Um, yeah, the, the idea would be you would just do – you would do Lesson Zero Season 1, which is Clay, uh, and then Clay goes to college, uh, Rules of Attraction. In Rules of Attraction, which I think came out in 1987, 
there is reference to that group of weird classics kids that study Greek and stuff like that. Because it's, it's like intertextual because he knew that Donatart had been writing this novel while he was writing. Do you know, it, were there actual weird Greek kids? I have no idea. Okay. I have, no, I have no idea. I haven't listened to that podcast. I eventually probably will. But where were we? What, you're, how, you're explaining your Netflix series. That's it. That's it. So you go from you go from uh, less than zero, less than zero to rules of attraction to secret history to uh, probably American Psycho, and then to story of my life at some oh, point. Oh yeah, story of my life. Yeah, which is Jay McInerney because that has the because there's the one character in American Psycho who's treated like absolute dirt, who was Jay McInerney's ex girlfriend. Yeah, and then she also ends up being a character in Glamorama. So you you have like all of these interconnected, and then novelties. the politician or whatever, right? Yeah, and then the politician, right? Which is the because uh, because that character is actually um, the character the the real person that that character is based on is the person that was impregnated by John Edwards during his campaign for president in two thousand four. I think 2004. Yeah. 2004, um, which which derailed his presidential ambitions. Right. It's like a six or eight season Netflix arc that it, yeah, each season is a book. Yeah, like in, in books that are independent of each other. Um, but, but not really. But have like this, yeah. this like intertwining uh, world. Fascinating. Yeah, really, really great. Yeah. I almost feel like we should do the casting thing because I, because having read this a second time and having talked to you about it, like the way that I was picturing these characters, because like in between these episodes, we have the Patreon, patreon.com slash lottery pod, where we often watch a thing or talk about a thing thematically linked to the book, right? Yeah. And so after I read this the first time, you told me about the failed adaptations or whatever. You're like, but Talented Mr. Ripley is kind of sort of. Yeah. Because it's an outsider in a wealthy, handsome, whatever. I just had these ideas in my mind reading the first time and also reading this time or whatever of those kind of things. I don't know if we should talk about it now or talk about it later, but I think... Fuck it, let's do it now. I think Richard... And also, this has to exist in a vacuum where anybody can be any age because, like, it doesn't work otherwise. But I have Richard Papin as Timothy Chalamet. Okay. And then the bunny and Henry thing, I don't know, but I have them in some kind of intertwined, interchangeable, because they're both, I think, like 6'3". They're both, like, big dudes, I think, as Affleck and Damon. Okay, yeah, this is, yeah. And then the twins, Charles and Camilla, I have, I think, because of Talented Mr. Ripley, as Jude Law and Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, that makes sense. And then Francis, I had somebody, I don't remember who it is. Maybe just the kid from, oh, what's his face? From Fantastic Beasts. Who's the redhead? Henry Redmayne? Eddie Redmayne, yeah. Sure, why not? And then the teacher, as Julian, I have Bob Alaban. He's my only one that's locked. Oh, wow. See, mine is so different from yours. Okay. So, so very different. Hit me with it. All right. um, Directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, first of all. Uh, Cooper Hoffman as uh, Bunny. Wow. Okay. Um, so he's like 16, even though Bunny's like 24. No, Cooper Hoffman's not 16. That that dude's like in his 20s. No, he was he's he was 17 when they started when they filmed that movie. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, fuck it. Um, well, it's a time. It's a, he's 18 now. He was born in March. Yeah. So so if you started if if he, if this movie started in production now, he'd probably be 22 by the time it's sure. getting made. Um, also, we have my my time machine that doesn't yet. Yeah. As the twins, I also have Timothy Chalamet, but he has as one of the twins, Timothy Chalamet, and. Uh, Lily Rose Depp as the twins, but you'd blonde them up probably. From the previously talked about on a Patreon episode, Wolf. Yeah, because they're both like weird yeah. creeps. Yep. <laughs> um, and their mom was Helen Bottom Carter, who's not in the book because she died, but their mom was definitely Helen Bottom Yeah, Carter. there's something that's very like uh, Tim Burton-y about both of them. Um, and then as Julie and I have uh, coming out of retirement, Daniel Day-Lewis. Oh, so you're really, this is the Paul Thomas Anderson all Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, and then I had a tough time with the Henry and... and uh, Bonnie, or Henry and Richard? And, Richard, yeah. and what about Francis? Francis, yeah. these Because the, you have to, like, uh, again, it's hard to age-appropriate cast these people. Just anybody you want. It's dream. Um, it's dream. No, no, no. It's, I, feel, I feel like I had to had to have it, like, in, in that moment. Like, I was thinking of Logan Lerman, but he's, like, a little too old now. And I was also thinking of Ezra Miller, who, like, would be a good Charles. Because he's really quite good looking. Um, As a of New Flash. Yeah, but he's also probably in his 30s now. Yeah, well. Uh, so, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. Um, and then Henry, it's weird because Henry throughout the entire book, I kept thinking that Henry was this incredibly handsome 
charismatic, but he's not. He's specifically kind of ugly and like fucked up looking and and is a weirdo. Henry is the most interesting character because I feel and I feel like he's interesting only because of what we learned in the last like 40 ish pages or something like Mm -hmm. he's the leader of this group. Yeah, but I think he's. The leader of the group because he's a leader of the group. If that makes sense. Like it's the it's well, he's the, the smartest of them. He he has he has the most proclivity toward the classics and the things that he's talking about. He has the tightest um, relationship with Julian, which may be a uh, quote unquote Socratic relationship. Um, and he uh, meaning they have sex with each other. And he right yeah yeah. And he's the best with languages. He's the person they turn to for answers he's also the wealthiest which puts him at the top of the uh food chain in in that which is i said earlier is very important to this group um obviously also very important to julian henry is or the fact that he's wealthy is the fact that he's wealthy yeah yeah but henry is also you know the the one who actually has a relationship with julian right the other i feel like we're all over the place and they don't know how to rein us back in but well, I think... well hold on so, so so there is something that is like like made me laugh out loud in the book and made me like re like adjust my um the way that i was looking at henry for the whole book i forget who's talking to richard about it it's probably francis is talking to him about it and he's like he's like yeah like henry like everyone was suspecting henry and richard's like why and he's like dude henry's a fucking weirdo Like, he's so bizarre, and everyone, like, we think that he's, like, cool and, like, a leader and someone that we look up to, but, like, everyone else thinks that he's just, like, some freak psychopath. I think this, I think it's Francis talking to Richard, I think, because it's toward the end, right? Because it's, like, Henry was so concerned with, like, appearances that he's, like, he thought it would make a difference what book he brought to the interrogation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where he's just, like, no, man, like... It's like also the cops don't know the difference between the Fido and, and the, right. like, the symposium or whatever. Yes. The the element that I think that really comes to a head in the last like 100 pages that I'm sort of surprised there isn't more of, but I think it also goes back to the whole like Richard not really in on things, is that it feels like they all should be and kind of are having sex with each other. Like Yeah, no, they are. They, they are all they, having sex but with like each that, other. But like that doesn't become clear until the end. Like there's suspicions. Yeah. But like after – so – Halfway through the book, Bunny is killed. Mm-hmm. Like 200, maybe even like exactly halfway through the book, right? Or 40% or 50%, whatever. Yeah, just about. And so the back half of the book is all of them coming to terms with the fact that like we just killed not only someone, but like our friend. And they all react in different ways. And like Charles drinks even more and like has like Charles seems to like to the outside world have the toughest time with it. Which like also let's rewind and look at this again from a Marxist perspective, which is that this is the thing that everyone's worried about. They kill Bunny, right? Um, And they're all broken up and they have moral questions about the murder and they, uh, everyone's freaking out about it because they might get caught. But nobody even seems to consider that murder is wrong when they kill the farmer, which is the inciting incident that, that drives them to kill Bunny. Right. And the reason is because Bunny, while broke compared to them, still has resources and is still like a a part of a a college community that is a a somewhat elite, prestigious community. And his parents, uh, his dad is the manager of a bank. They have resources. They have a a home. They have all of these things. Um, The farmer is someone whose community essentially does not exist to these students. And they don't see him even really as a human being because he doesn't. Like they say over and over again, how how little his life is worth, right? right? How it how how it would be stupid to throw away their lives for the life of of like this like bumpkin whatever. Even though objectively, when they describe what actually happened, they're like, yeah, well, we were trespassing on his property in the middle of the night, and like, and it seems brutal. They clubbed his face in. Yep. They caved his face in by hitting him. Yep. Yeah. So so there is like a a specifically. Uh, underclass versus versus the elite view view of that where it's like well if you murder this one person it does not matter unless you are outed by a class traitor and the the uh the punishment of that class traitor having a moral conscience which whether or not that's what I, I wouldn't say that bunny has a moral conscience so much as he's trying to take advantage of the situation sure. but again take advantage of the situation mostly for money but actually he does have a moral conscience because he writes the letter to to Etc. But um, he's killed essentially for being a traitor, to yeah. be, being a class traitor, right? For standing up for this this guy. But it also like there is the whole like 
the wealthy are always going to get out of their crimes because yes. there's there is the auto mechanic who they're like, oh shit, this is like this is after Bunny is killed, yeah. And there's like a manhunt for Bunny, and there's like a fifty thousand dollar reward or whatever. And it seems like, but also we're in the, the minds of them that like they're all worried, but it seems like they kind of got away with it because like it snows and like it really kind of covers up the tracks and whatever. And then they see this guy that they know, and that not only do they know, but they know that they all like know Bunny and whatever because he works like, on Richard's car. He's and, a mechanic who works on Richard's car, and they're like, oh no, this is bad. Like this is, and the guy's just like, yeah, a couple of Arabs did it, and just like. What? And like, so there's like the races in there, but like that bails them out. So it's, again, it's just sort of like, it's a different kind of privilege, but it's just like, yeah, they just got lucky that like, whatever. Right. It's also an interesting like 1980s prejudice that has come back around, obviously. Yeah. But in the end, we find out that Charles and Camilla, brother and sister, sleep with each other sometimes. Like, it feels like everybody should be sleeping with Camilla, but I think the reason they're not is because she's just in love with Henry. Well, Charles sleeps with Francis sometimes. Francis, I think, because Francis is the only, like, he's openly gay. Yeah. And the only one that, but, like, they're all Greek in whatever sense that means. You know what I mean? So they're all, like, plus, they only talk to six people. Right, yeah. If if, if your group of, of peers is six people deep and there's one woman among you and she is in a relationship with her brother, essentially, and her brother is psychotically jealous, where do you go for... for Right. Like Richard exists as an outsider and Richard is a guy that goes and has sex with someone. And Bunny is an outsider who the sex within the group like kind of embarrasses slash appalls him because he has a girlfriend and he doesn't he the the the, like ethical implications of Charles and Camilla, which doesn't occur to them. Like they're not the, the group is like specifically not concerned with ethics. They're not concerned with like modern morality, right? They're focused on uh, Greek morality. But Bunny is is an outsider to that. So Bunny walks in on Charles and Camille having sex, and he's horrified by it, and and uses it to like abuse other members of the group. But also from the very beginning of the novel, Bunny's view of the world is cemented when they're at the restaurant yeah, that he invites right. Richard to and it's just like hey like let me take you out to lunch and he's like let me pay for the cab and he's like oh I don't have money by the way and then they have to call in Henry but when they have the very seemingly flamboyant maitre d' like seat them or the waiter or whoever yeah. Bunny says you know there's nothing I hate like I hate an officious F word you ask me I think they ought to round them all up and burn them at the stake he's just like shouting this yeah you're right in what you're saying before that both Richard and Bunny are on the outside, but Richard at least is trying to play the game. He wants to begin, and maybe maybe that's how Bunny was at one point, where just at the end of the journey. No, I, th- I think he does. I think he just doesn't know how. I think he, Bunny. I, yeah, I think he's like number one an iconoclastic personality, but also he has a deep lack of ability. Yeah. Right? He's he can um, uh, he's uh, dyslexic. He is again. He's broke. So he has to make up for it in other ways. And one of the other ways that he makes up for, for being this person who's on the outside is to be abusive to people. Yeah. So he's mean to he's he's uh, mean to the mater D because the mater D is a, is a server. Right. And he is um, playing the role of a rich person. So he's lording his power over the mater D saying what he can to insult him sure. without without feeling any any uh, blowback on it. Yep. And he's doing this to impress Richard, who he assumes is rich. Right. But Richard. We, as we know, because we're in his head, doesn't really have a dollar to his name. Yeah. Like, has to get money from Dr. Roland, I think, is the guy he works for. And, like, has to, like, lie to get an advance so that he can just, like, have some spending money. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I think is interesting and frustrating to the, like, class classism of it all is that they are annoyed by Bunny. And Bunny is being annoying. Bunny is being annoying as both just like a person and a friend and like someone who should be like good to them but it's just like antagonizing them and needling them and like knows and like he's just like lording it over them and like he's being rude and like calling names or whatever and they're like we need to do something with this and like there's probably a million other ways that they could deal with it other than murdering him but they're like we gotta murder we can't do anything else and then they murder him and then they're like well this is annoying now too (laughs) Like, if I knew, like, if, if we had to deal with this manhunt, we had to go to, like, his funeral. Like, if I had to deal with all this, like, we never would have murdered him. It's just, like, like, it doesn't, like, I think that shows that, like, his death, their, the act that they did didn't impact them. Like, it impacted Charles. Like, I think it impacts some of them. But, like, collectively, they're just, like, just another annoying thing. They're more impacted by the notion of being caught than they are by the the uh, moral complications of, of doing something bad. Right. 
And again, the whole like being caught thing, like the fact that they kind of get, and I think it's hard to tell how close they actually are to getting caught because I think Richard has a different perspective, which means we have a different perspective. Yeah. Actually, I, th- I think that's like the the reason the novel works is because of of what you're what you talked about earlier, where um, like many of the of the mystery plot machinations are hidden from us. Yes, right. Like a, a lesser novel, a novel that was like um, I don't want to say lesser novel, but if it were a genre novel instead of a, a literary novel, um, this is kind of a genre novel. It is, it is, but it's not because it's focused on character instead of plot. If it were a uh, like a Sue Grafton novel or something like that, we would follow Henry to the police station and we'd sit through the interview and right. stuff like that. But like in reality, all of the investigative measures are obscured from us in favor of learning about the emotional state of Richard and then him like the atmospheric tension of him being confused about like well, why is Charles freaking out so much? Right. Like, why is he so mad right now? And he's like, one of the reasons why he's so mad is not because it doesn't have anything really to do with the um, murder, but it's because Henry is sleeping with his sister. Yep. But the other way that they're kind of bailed out is that there is, and again, it's, it's like what I was saying, it's hard to know how true all of this is. And ultimately, I don't think it doesn't matter because they do get away with it. I mean, like, yeah. But there's the Cloak Rayburn character, who's like the campus right. drug dealer. Yeah, yeah. And either through manipulation or chance or just the fact that they look a certain way and he looks a certain way. Exactly, yes. That they're just like, oh, yeah, clearly like Henry might have been involved, but like he probably just like was like investing in this drug dealing scheme and whatever. And like he didn't kill Bunny, but like he was doing some stuff, but like he's not one for murder. Yeah, it's clearly It's cloak. a white collar, white collar crime, yeah, basically. It's clearly Cloak, who is like a bad element to the school and is... Even though Cloak seems like a more, like, on the ranking of the characters, <laughs> Cloak is probably higher than most of the other characters. You Maybe know, not. Not higher than Judy Pooey. No. Which, I I went through my uh, highlights, because I highlighted a bunch of things. I want to I wanna do three Judy Pooey descriptions, because they might be let's, the three. Let's get them. Number one. This is the first time he describes her. She had wild clothes, frosted hair, a red Corvette with California plates bearing the legend. Do you know her, do you remember her license plate? No. Judy P. Fuck Yeah. I love her. her Sid- Sydney Sweeney is Judy Poovey, by the way. Her, I, I just was picturing Shiv, but yeah, she absolutely. Her voice was loud and rose frequently to a screech, which rang through the house like the cries of some terrifying tropical bird. And then later, there was no doubt about it. Charles looked terrible. This is after the murder. I stood in the door looking at it for a moment and said, wait a minute, and went down the hall to Judy's room. I found her lying on the bed watching a Mel Gibson movie on a VCR she'd borrowed from the video department. She was managing somehow to polish her fingernails, smoke a cigarette, and drink a Diet Coke all at the same yeah, time. Yeah, she was. This is the best character in the whole book. And then, in the epilogue, when they're like, and this is how it all shook out, and here's all the characters. And like they go through like for four pages. like All these characters, like, I didn't even remember were characters, but she's like, and then the detectives. like The one guy died, and she's like, I don't give a shit. What are you doing? <laughs> but the best one, the best where are they now, Judy Poovey is now something of a minor celebrity. A certified aerobics instructor, she appears regularly with a bevy of other muscle-toned beauties on an exercise program, Power Moves, on cable TV. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like at the end of uh, uh, Animal House when they're like... I still haven't seen Animal House. Oh. I won't ruin it for you, though. Okay. Um, but they have one of those at the end, and it's, like, very silly. But, yeah, like, they're all just like, well, you know... Uh, this is depressing, and this is kind of depressing. He, like, made a life for himself. And Judy Poovey's, like, a superstar. <laughs> She's the one that deserves it. Like, yeah. she she deserves to move forward. She rules. Um, I, if, if this were, if you were making this movie in in uh, actual time when it came, when the book came out, Joan Cusack for that character. Sure. Like, for, like, I want a Rosencrantz and Gilderstern, but just Judy Poovey. And like it's just like her going to parties and like yeah, and yeah. like Richard showing up and just being like Richard here here here's a coat just take the coat I don't give a shit yeah I mean well like her she would fit right in with like I think one reason why she's so so great is because um, she's probably the kind of girl that Donna Tartt hung out with well yeah she's she's not one of these uh, classics kids right she's she's like um, our point of view character for how weird everything is with this yeah. group of people because she's. Just being a college kid, enjoying, like, you know, doing coke, uh, going to parties, watching Mel Gibson movies, taking advantage of, of things. Like, also is very generous, like, gives Richard a coat from the uh, yeah. from the costume department just so that he doesn't look foolish when he when he goes out with, uh, with Bunny for lunch. With Bunny, yeah. And, and she's, like, very nice. 
What I also like, and this is a minor thing, but in the description, you know, on a VCR sheet borrowed from the video department, but at one point, they're like, Henry, how much does a TV cost? I want to watch the news tonight. Just like, you do, oh. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. they're just going to buy They're going to buy a TV to watch the news. And they do. Well, they, I mean. Uh, Different era, but still. No, no, but you can, you can talk about, like, this is the 80s, and Henry is, you know, when they go to, uh, when he goes to Italy with Bunny. When he comes back, he mentions that he he had spent something like twenty five thousand dollars on 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 Bunny like during that like Christmas break, which yep. is like an unbelievable amount of money. It's an unbelievable. Even now, it'd be like yeah. a lot of money. Back yeah. then, when it's it's probably worth like four times that or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. So and, and Bunny's still like, oh, you know, you're cheap. He's like, like it's funny that Bunny like keeps calling Henry cheap because he's like, you have. Well, all he drove Henry to come home early because he's being such an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, Henry went home early because Bunny discovered in his book that he had he had confessed all of the crimes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Which is like, why would you do that, Henry? Because he thinks he's smarter. Yeah. Because he's he's essentially like uh, and and like that tracks like the ways in which this book is a genre novel. Like he is the kind of person like like that is exactly something that like a character in a in a uh, like that Hannibal Lecter would do. Right. Like, oh, I I wrote all of my uh, confessions in coin Greek so that, you know, only a scholar would be able to catch me. What I also think about that, uh, what, what's funny about that is that when they're out with the normal people mm-hmm. and something serious goes, they just start speaking in Greek. Yeah. And they're like, they know that that's like a thing that they can fall back on, right? Because it's just like these dummies, and by dummies, I mean like people who aren't nerd, like Greek nerds, just right. like literally anyone else don't speak Greek because why would you speak Greek? And so they don't know. So they can just like speak openly, but like in secret. And then when there's like the most tense part of the book, when they're in Julian's office and they find the letterhead that it actually was a note from bunny, they're like, we can't even speak Greek. (laughs) Yeah. Like our one superpower. Right. We, we don't, we're powerless. I wanted it to like, like I thought it would have been really funny if, cause I, um, I knew like a number of Greek uh, kids in the in the dorm at William Patterson, and it's just like it would have been really funny if they had like a working class person that was Greek like overhear them and just like knew because they spoke Greek. We're just like, oh yeah, like what did you say about like mur- what? Yeah, you did a murder. Like that would have been that would have been really funny because it w- it also like breaks down the walls of that because like um, something that I. At a very young age, I was very impressed by my father because he my, my dad spoke a lot of languages. He spoke like, I think like five or six languages. Polyglot. And and I was always like, oh my God, like what a genius. But then like teaching now, I have students who are like, like I had a student who's from Syria and she's like a, she's like an 18 year old girl and she speaks like, you know, French, Arabic, English. And, and it's just like, just the circumstances of her life. It has nothing to do with being a genius or with being like a... a it's being raised by people of two different languages who yeah. are living in the third place. Yeah, exactly. But like my dad believed that it elevated him to sure. some like higher plane of, of intellect and academia because he did all these things. But the reality is that like language is not an elitist construct. It exists for everybody. Um, certainly circumstance allows rich people to like study languages, but like you don't need to study languages to, to, uh, to know them. You can just, they can just be part of your growth. Right. Yeah. Um, so like, I, it, like that would have been an interesting thing, but I, I'm not telling Don Tart how to write her book. Cause she wrote what I think of as a masterpiece. So certainly a seminal thing within the genre of campus literature, like maybe the, ultra text of campus literature do you think is this the best book we've read this season so far yeah how does it compare to the other the best book from last season owen meany owen meany's a better book yeah i think by the end of this season this will not be the best book that we read this season probably the instructions yeah by my by my opinion but i you know because like if you what i like about this season that you've done is that like we you've you made a conscious effort to sort of diversify and have some that was sort of like low art or whatever. Yeah. But like the other things in the running, I would say maybe the bell jar, but the bell jar is also not aspiring to be like literature. I don't think like it, it, it might be, but I think, yeah, no, I think it is. You think? Yeah. Nickel boys, maybe end zone, maybe, but even end zone is kind of like lesser Delilah, but that's also not really fair. Cause like lesser Delilah is still better than most of their whatever. Right. But like loner's a different thing. Giles is a totally different thing. My education's a different thing. The virgins is kind of genre sort of, 
art of fielding is something different and prep is definitely something different. So like, yeah, these books are all, they're all doing different things, I think, but like what they are doing that's similar is they're all, um, to various degrees representing closed communities. Right. And then this book in particular is a closed community within a closed community. So you have the community of, of Hampton, which is isolated from the farmer and the uh, mechanic, right? The working class people in the novel that exist outside of, of, of the campus are either viewed as like, literally a dead person that doesn't really matter or this like psycho racist uh etc who who they dismiss even though within their group they're also incredibly prejudiced yeah um and then you have you but know, they're prejudiced in a way that they think is right right because they believe themselves exactly. to be intellectually yes. superior and then they're a closed community within within hampton so everyone sees them and thinks that they're weirdos they don't really have access to the the rest of the college socially so much but, uh, but Bunny, they, Bunny but they could bit. like the campus. The campus is closed off to them. They've closed themselves off from the campus, right? Like they yeah. could just go to parties. Like Richard, kind of like he sleeps with other people or whatever, right? Like he's yeah gets somewhat... beat up when he does, but yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, yes, but like Stay also away from Mona. Camilla goes to a party and like they're just like, why are you here? But like I think like if she just like was like I'm here to hang out or whatever, yeah. right? Like they... and she flirts with Cloak and Cloak like is is into it. Yep. And and Bunny is friends with uh, his his fiance Marion and Cloak from from home. What do you think of the three or four dream sequences in the book? What what are remind me of what they are? There's one where he sees Bunny. There's one he sees. I think it's generally after a character dies, Richard has yeah. a dream. And the, but he like because this whole is told from Richard, his first person uh-huh. perspective. He's like, oh yeah, by the way, I had a dream the other night, and like it's just like kind of like weird, ethereal. Like he's like, I'm walking through the woods or whatever, and then Bunny was there. I don't really have a clear recollection of what the dreams entailed, other than like dead characters are kind of coming back to life and sort of yeah. talking to him a little bit. But I think the inclusion of a dream sequence at all, and then like doing it a few times, at least three times. Well, I think okay. So is, there, is it a, is a specific choice? So here is where I think I mentioned this to you in text messages, but I and and I have forgotten to bring it up so far. But I really I really meant to. I think something that would advance my understanding of this book yes. and and its methods and um, that's kind of leading you here. I think a, a lot. Bit. A yes. lot of the things that are important to it um, would be a greater understanding of. Greek literature, like ancient, like the classics. Yep. Which like, I, you know, I, I, uh, have some philosophy under my belt. So I've read, like, I've read Plato, Socrates. It's, it's like, I've read, you know, some of the, the, the early plays, Sophocles, etc. But like, I, you know, like my understanding of this stuff is very minimal and I don't like, like, there's a lot of like Greek ethics stuff and, and things like that, that I think would really advance my understanding of the text if I, if I knew a lot more about that, like I, I am like really impressed with Donna Tartt and, and the way that like how smart she seems about this stuff. And she does it in a way that there's a couple things that you and I have seen that we've watched together in the last two or three months that utilize other existing art to basically like finish their story. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like drive my car, which uh-huh. we're recording this the day that the Oscar nominations were announced deservedly. So nominated for best picture. But, yeah. like, that movie has a beautiful ending, and then they just go, and they end it with another writer, right? It was, yeah, it's Chekhov. Chekhov. Chekhov does, like, a lot of the emotional heavy lifting of the end of that. But movie. there was a beautiful ending to that movie, and then, like, we got another scene, we're going to do another guy's thing. And it's just like, yeah. and then Station Eleven, which we just watched. They let Hamlet do a lot of the heavy lifting. And that, and it works. I think they it works for both of them. Yeah. But it's also like, why are you like letting another writer basically take credit or giving credit to another writer or like letting them do the work? Here, it might be happening, but I feel like she's using more restraints. Well, yeah, I mean, I think she's using um, the ways in which these texts and their uh, and like Julian has a different system of ethics and morality than than other people. Clearly, well, Julian quits on them. Like yeah, he he, ba- he bails once he discovers that, well, that Henry murdered the farmer. No, when Henry murdered Bunny, if uh he probably wouldn't care to to know that Henry murdered Well, the farmer. at one it point wouldn't matter to him. After Bunny dies, they see him. Like before they before he knows that they murdered Bunny. When Bunny dies, he's like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Like he's going to quit then. He's yeah. like, I might just go away and not come back. Right. And then he does come back and then quits for real when he finds out that like, which I I understand, but like I don't know if it's cowardice, but it's a different, he has a different set of values than yeah. the rest of them. Julian has a different set of values and Julian's set of values obviously influences their set of values, which are all like 
promoted, filtered through this idea of the supremacy of classical uh, values, classical literature, classical uh, languages, etc. I want to talk about the two, the, the most tense part of the novel, which we talked about, which is the letter, the discovery of the letter. Yeah, that's real genre stuff. That's that's like basically like the scene of Tom Cruise dangling from the fucking wire in Mission Impossible. Yep. Right? Level of tension. And then I also want to talk about the thing that I remembered the most, most vividly from the first time I read it, which is, we also reference it, which is Richard staying in the warehouse over winter break yeah. and almost dying. Uh-huh. I remember that sequence, and it doesn't feel like it belongs in this novel because, like we talked about before, it could kind of be cut out. But it's like, oh, yeah, no, that's this book. Yeah, you don't want to cut it out because it's no. great. Yeah. And and there's no reason to cut it out except for to make it shorter. And the only reason you want to make it shorter is to spend less time with the book. And why would you want to spend less time with this wonderful book? Yeah. I I The summer after I graduated from Ramapo, I was a professional tutor, a writing tutor there, and which meant that I got paid more and we had no work. Because like, I don't even think kids oh, yeah. knew that we were open. I've been there. Yeah. I but I lived too. on campus. It was me and this kid. I think his name was Jake. Who was like a nice kid. He just like sit in, he, we, like we shared a dorm room or whatever. And he like would just sit there playing video games. I'm like, I didn't have a problem with him. But our other roommates would like throw parties. Like they were just there like, to for school. Like they took a class or two or whatever. And they would just like party and drink and smoke every night. I'm just like, I don't want to, you know, begrudge them their fun. But I don't want to, I don't want to be around noise. Like I just want to be like, I want to read books or watch yeah. movies or whatever. And so I sort of did what Richard did where I was just like, where can I go on campus for as much time as possible? And I just so like I kind of like related. I didn't I didn't almost die because I wasn't in like a, a warehouse with like a, a hole in the ceiling where like he, you know, still has body aches years after the fact because like he almost died. But like, yeah, the specific feeling of like, I don't want to go where I'm supposed to sleep tonight for an extended period of time. I related to him. I'm just like that. That feels real. I've, yeah, I've, I've, I've had that um, through not liking my roommates and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, I also have a weirdly uh, stupid um, can relate to this. There's in my house that I live in right now, which is the house that I partially grew up in. There's no heat or air conditioning on the second floor of the house. One year during the winter, one of the windows broke and it was like stuck halfway down. And instead of fixing it, I just I, I would just sleep in that room, and I would wake up, and I would be so sore. And it was because my body was clenched all yep. night. Because you can't you can't sleep, and like if it's like twenty five degrees, you can put blankets and blankets and blankets on top of you. But if you're shivering, you'll wake up, and you'll just feel like you were you know exercising. All you didn't, night you didn't rest. Yeah. So so I like I I, ref, I you know that bounced me back to that like sensory memory it felt it really did feel like Donatart had experienced that kind of freezing yeah. before yeah because it's really visceral writing it's almost like hatchet or something like that um the john L- J- J- jack london story where you really get this sense of uh how cold it is yeah should we talk about the end or is there more to talk about before i get to the end um well let's talk about the the bacchanal there, there's like one of the things that this book does that is maybe my favorite thing that it happens in literature is it takes things that are supernatural and then walks it back and is like it's not is it that wasn't supernatural it's like but maybe it was but, but maybe all, it wasn't but maybe but it I, was but i think it's also because it's like secondhand information way after the fact and nobody gives him even remotely a straight story right on it they have uh, although those like dreamlike sequences are beautiful they talk about like snakes twining around their hands the 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 moon and the sun flying through the the sky uh you know the the clouds flashing blood red camilla turns into a deer um there's some implication that they gangbang camilla as well she they wash her hair with the farmer's blood from his face because she when she comes to consciousness her her blonde hair is completely red yep. and has like his viscera like not viscera but like his like chunks of brain and stuff inside her hair and and they have all these scratches and tears on them and they they're miles and miles away from from where uh, France's farmhouse is so it's like I think those sections I think were beautiful and also like and this is also only like what they tell Rich like this is probably I mean again it's all fiction it doesn't matter but like what what they what actually happened is probably even crazier and more visceral and violent than even that well because you only get the you you only get like a couple of snatches from pieces the one thing that you do get from multiple perspectives is that there was a camilla charles 
um, Bunny Henry Francis. No, Bunny was not there. Oh, right, he learned Henry, about it. Therefore, they they, they they all agree that there was a fifth person there, and the fifth person was Dionysus, right? The god yes. of wine and and like partying. Yeah. Um, and Hedonism like, bot from Futurama. Yeah, and and so like he exists as this fifth character in the Bacchanal, and so like it seems like that part is true because you you get it confirmed from multiple perspectives. But they were also all on drugs. They were they were you know sensory deprived. They, yep. they were you know uh, mass hallucinating, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like it's like maybe that didn't didn't really happen, but maybe it did. Maybe they unlocked something and 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 Richard only like they're only sort of begrudgingly telling Richard like they don't ever want to tell him. They're yeah, just like right. we, we kind of have to because like we need to understand the bunny thing. But to understand the bunny thing, like you need to know why bunnies mad at us and like so. Uh, you know that crazy thing we read about in the Greek? Like, we we, we did that thing. Which Julian approves of. Julian's like, yeah, go for it. Do it. Yeah, Sounds awesome. Yeah, I mean, it does sound awesome. It does, yeah. We should, I mean, we should do it. Um, Patreon. Uh, if you want to take part in a Bacchanal get-together, we'll worship the moon or whatever. Uh, we'll figure out how to do it. Yeah. And if you are a patron, we'll invite you. Yeah. No weird sex stuff, though. Okay, what did you want? You wanted to say something about the end. So the end. So... I think there's two kind of like endings, two codas to this, right? There's like before the epilogue and then there's the epilogue itself. So after this all, like they get away with the crime and Julian leaves and they bring in that other professor and he sucks. He yeah, just, that was really funny. Like when he's like, oh, you may have trouble with this. And it's like the, just like a Bible passage and they're all just like, Jesus, this guy. And Richard's like, I suck at Greek and this guy's a joke. <laughs> yeah. They bring Charles out to the – because the, he's – He's not. He needs to dry out. Right. He's, he's been like increasingly freaking for for a very yes. long time. And they bring him out into the country, the the Francis's Francis's house, yeah, right? Francis's country house. His, yeah. his family home, and he leaves. He like he has a, he gets a DUI, and then he that's why they bring him out there. And then he borrows the neighbor's truck, and he just goes AWOL. And then they find out where Camilla has been staying with Henry because they're all like kind of. They're all still in their, like, little bubble, but they're all sort of, like, branching out. And yeah. I also feel like part of that might just be that nobody's really telling Richard anything, and, like, the other ones kind of pe- sort of know. But it does feel like Camilla's, like, actually in hiding, because she's under a different name, whatever. And she seems like she is fine with it, because she wants to hide from Charles, who's a psychopath, and she thinks that Henry is protecting her. Right. Which he kind of is, a little bit. Yeah, but he's also a psychopath. Yes. But Richard sort of outsmarts them and figures out how to figure out where they are and finds them. And so they go there and they're like, Charles is gone. She's like, what? And then Charles shows up there, too, and he has a gun. Yeah. And then Henry kind of gets sort of what's been coming to him in a way. He does it to himself, but, like, Charles fires, hits Richard, causes mayhem in this hotel room. The managers are coming upstairs. And Henry's like, it's kind of all my fault. And, like, does an honorable but also coward, cowardly thing in killing himself to, like, save the group, kind of. Yeah. And because he's, like, I don't, he doesn't want the indignity of being someone who, I don't know, like, has to go to trial and prison and all these things. Yeah. And there's a funny thing in there where it's, like, everyone's freaking out about what to do. And then Richard is just like, uh, I've been shot. And he's what are like, we going to do about me? And he's like, I thought they would all freak out. And they're just like, all right, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah. It's a pretty funny book, too. I mean, I feel like that's something that's come up a, a, a lot of times during this semester. Like, I think semester during this season. I, I think semester is fine. Which is that, like, books that are um, otherwise serious. I'm just like, yeah, but there's also, like, this funny element to it that you don't really. Well, I think you need to. Because, like, if this was a 600-page book about pretentious, stuffy assholes studying Greek. Yeah. And, like, covering up a murder and there was no levity. It's just, like, that sounds terrible. Well, something something that surprised me this read was – this is the second time that I've read it. The first time that I read it was probably ten years ago. Um, Get on my level, man. Twice in two years. I uh, – like, almost every single thing that I remember from the book happened in the first half. Okay. Like, up to the murder. And I don't know if this is actually true or not, but I feel like the first half is sort of actions and the second half is kind of thought. Yeah, the second half is also them, like, hemming and hawing and, and rubbing their hands and, yeah. and going, like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? What and they're reacting do? to things. They're do- I mean, the first half is also kind of reacting to yeah. things, but, like... It does do the thing that I'm not wild about, which is, from the very beginning, you know that Bunny's going to be killed. Yeah. Because, like, the, like, the first page is, like, you know, after, 
after Bunny died or whatever. Like, do you start that the, if you if you're filming this movie, do you start with like a helicopter shot of like people searching? That's my like, least favorite thing in movies. And like a yeah, I know. So like, I I wouldn't do that. I would start with I would start with uh, Richard showing up to school. Yeah, probably. I don't know. Like, does that does that change the novel in a way that's unfair? I don't know. I don't know. In the epilogue, Richard dates Sophie, who's the hot one that Bunny yeah. used to date or whatever. They break up. He's like, I never really loved her. I always loved Camilla. Uh, Charles escapes to Texas with a married woman. They're happy, but they're also like broken, poor, and probably on drugs. There's no reason for anyone to love Camilla. That's that's a thing that is. She's like, the one who is there. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like there's this is something that always bothers me in books. Uh, that that include romance is that like it's very very rarely is it justified why anyone actually likes anyone else i think this one does a good job of justifying it because like she's literally the only woman yeah that they talk to for 90 percent of the book right except for like judy poovey's right there i know with the license plate judy p camilla aforementioned camilla takes care of their grandmother doesn't speak to charles anymore won't marry Richard, even though it kind of, in a way, makes sense, but also maybe only makes sense because we're in Richard's head. But she's like, I love Henry. He's like, so do I. She's like, it's not enough. Well, they see each other later, right? Because Francis tries to kill himself. Francis sends them both letters saying, I'm done. Right. Francis tries to kill himself, and then he Richard shows up, and he's just like, yeah, I'm marrying this woman I hate because my grandfather found out I'm gay and like won't give me any money if he if I marry a dude or if I don't marry a woman. So like, Tale as old as time. And then Judy Poovey, a fitness celebrity. Yeah, I'm glad that we get her uh, wrap up. We get – there's probably 25 characters they wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When they're, they're like, uh, the detective died of lung cancer. She's like, all right. I guess like there was four – he was smoking a lot of cigarettes when we met him. But like eh, it's really weird. Yeah. Anything else about the novel you want to read or write about – talk – Jesus Christ. Rap about I – did, I did a little – I wrote a little – a couple rhymes here. Um, give me a beat. No, I'm just kidding. Don't give me a beat. That would be embarrassing. I hate it on, on podcasts when people freestyle rap. You want to hear what Meg had to say? Oh, yeah. We're not doing we're n- n- no Matt tonight because, again, it's too late. It's also a boring cover. It's yeah. like a Greek statue. Yeah, it it we, is reminiscent of the David. We need to, yeah, we need to get Matt back into the show, but we need to record the show at an hour when it wouldn't be obnoxious to call him. And there have to be good covers. All right, yeah, let's hear what the egg has to say. Which, by the way, egg has written in three emails since we last recorded. Because I, she's so much faster. The than next two are. books are very short. Yeah, you already read one of them. This is my fault. It's not my fault, but like we are also we're not, we weren't really behind. Yeah, no, you had to go to Las Vegas to to um, Joey got married um, and, and divorced and and divorced. It was a yeah. Shreds was my best man. Yeah, via yeah. Zoom. Via Zoom, um, gambled the the wedding money away at the craps table uh, and went to the NHL All-Star game to see Jack Hughes, who gave everyone COVID. Yeah. Meg's reaction to the secret history. If you want to write in about this book or any book, lottery at cageclub.me, please and thank you. The secret history is the best book I've read for a long time. Yeah, great. This is another audio book. That also just reminds me of like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I know you don't love as a movie. Oh, the, the movie's was, fine. The book is terrible. That was the best acting I've ever yeah. seen in my entire life. I'm just re- I'm reading Meg writing this email. Oh, I have a I, yeah, I have a weird um, I do have a weird story to tell after Meg's email. Go ahead. Where the it's a long email. You want to tell the story now? Um, I saw uh, when I saw John Darnell on his book tour for Universal Harvester. Uh, Donna Tart interviewed him. I saw, oh. I, I saw them like. She, she was on stage with him. They were just sitting in chairs talking back and forth. And it was really cool. Cool. Yeah. We will actually, I am reading, have you started Devil House yet or not yet? No. John Darnell just put out a book last month in January of 2022 called Devil House. And we're both going to read it. We're going to do a little bonus episode that we would put behind the Patreon wall, which we're going to put there too, but we'll also release it to the public because. Yeah, why not? It's a new book. So read that in addition to the reading list for this semester. I'm calling it semester now too. This was another audiobook I listened to with Libby. According to the app, the audiobook was 22 hours long, and I picked it up only 13 times before finishing it. So she had like two hours a clip, basically. So that she was into it. Yeah. I liked the first half better than the second, which you said you remembered more of the first half. So maybe you liked the first half better the first time? Hard to say. While I was listening to the second half, it gave me feelings of stress and anxiety, like I was complicit in their crime. 
It was like the feeling you get when you wake up from a nightmare where you did something horrible right before the relief sets in that it didn't actually happen. It doesn't happen to me. You have a normal brain. Yeah, I have a normal I have a normal brain. I don't take bad things happen to me in nightmares. I don't do bad things to other people. <laughs> I get my teeth pulled out by animals. You said that in a way that was like badass. You're like but like it, but, <laughs> but in reverse. Bad like, things happen to me. I don't <laughs> listen, lady. Shitty things happen to me all the time. I don't do shitty things to other people. They happen to me. <laughs> they happen to me. I have monks reaching into my stomach, which is filled with black tar. And it's just like, if you don't speak English, you're like, wow, that guy is so commanding. He's he's clearly, and you're like, wait, what is he saying? Egg goes on, I was really interested in the concept of evilness in the novel. I'm not sure if evil, quote unquote, evil is the right word, but it feels closest to my point, albeit a bit strong, so continue to use it. Although it isn't treated as such by Richard, I think that it could be argued that Julian is an evil character. Mm. He's the one who provided the means in the way of the novel to progress in the way that it did. Now, I don't want to blame Julian for the events, like the Bacchanalia and the murder of Bunny explicitly, but I want to say that he's the one who provided the environment where Henry's concept of right and wrong twisted. By using the ethics of ancient Greece and the classics as absolute truth, rather than a way to inform thoughts regarding modern ethics... (laughs) That's such a smarter way of saying what I said earlier. (laughs) She's Yeah, but she's got time to write this. She could probably edit it. (laughs) That's true. We're in the moment. Yeah. He created the environment where the students... Also, she's smarter than you. (laughs) Definitely smarter than me. He created the environment where the students had the ability to act out similar concrete events, the classic era, as opposed to just talking talking about them in the academic background of a class. It actually sounds like... I, I, I I don't know if Meg does have any background in, in, in classics or if she if she's more it, it sounds like she is actually more familiar with classics and is sort of confirming what i was talking about earlier she has a couple more paragraphs maybe she gets into it. i don't know right. that compounded with the fact that julian put the students in a vacuum or echo chamber by informing every aspect of their education shows how julian isn't necessarily an innocent party yeah that show would only fly in like some wildly east coast liberal elite school like brown Tied into all of that is the concept of wealth within the novel, which is what we talked about before. George LaForge yeah, told... Yeah, that's a, that's a like, uh, funny... Every time I read that uh, name, I was like, what the fuck? Told Richard that Julian probably wouldn't accept him into his group of students if he knew Richard was on a scholarship, which gets confirmed later in the novel when Julian's talking about how poor people would be happier if they accepted their lot in life. There are a couple of instances where Henry or Francis say something along the lines of, quote, we had absolutely no money, we had less than $4,000 between us... <laughs> And then when Henry is talking about how he was going broke with Bunny in Italy, but then he says he had $2,000 with Bunny before he left. I think both of these parts happen after Richard's experience with the hole in the roof. I'm not 100% certain the timeline there. But yeah, but like from the beginning, Richard's like, I need to lie to get like $20. Yeah, and and Bunny, um, one of the most tense parts of the book is when Bunny is like, uh, what private school did you go to? Oh, that one. What dorm did you live in? Because I have a friend who went to, who who went there, and he he knows like he's never heard of you before. So, what dorm was it that you lived in? And, and you're just like you feel it for Richard because yeah. he's like been caught in this thing. And Bunny again, Bunny is someone who has less material wealth and power than all the other people in the group. So Bunny is the one who needs to, the, the rest of them don't need to call Richard out on that. They don't need to expose him as because being they a fraud. know they know he, they're better than him. Yeah, they they wouldn't. Um, but like, like Bunny wants to establish superiority. Sure, him. it's a Marxism all the way down. Moving forward, I also thought it was interesting how the homoerotic subtext served as a red herring for the bacchanalia. When there was a scene where Richard caught Henry and Julian kissing, I assumed that the secret was that Bunny caught Henry in a sexual relationship, and that's where the tension was from. We as readers already know that Bunny's homophobic, which the quote I read before, with the biggest example of that being the restaurant. Yep. Yeah. In hindsight, aside from tension, the scene where Julian and Henry, with Julian and Henry, provides another implicit example of Julian abiding by the social rules of ancient Greece, as opposed to modern ones, with the erotic relationship of teacher and student. Right, that's the, that, that is the Socratic relationship that I was talking about before. A couple of final thoughts and one question. First point, great point. Love Judy Poovey. Thought she was great. <laughs> Thought she was a great fun foil to the rest of the serious character. She yeah. adds depth to the novel by showing that Richard lives in a world where not everyone's ensnared by ancient Greek rights. Fuck yeah. That's that Judy Poovey rules. Give Judy Poovey like if Donna Tart right now was like, my next novel is a Judy Poovey novel. Let's catch up with her in 2022. I would be 
all in on that shit. Tom Parada, you got Tracy Flick. I got Judy Poovey. Yeah. 20 years later, 30 years later, let's see what's up. It. I would love it. What's Judy Poovey doing now? It's interesting to me that Bunny was exposing truths when he was trying to get in people's heads. Typically, truth equals good, but these truths were upsetting to the characters when they were exposed, and they were being exposed maliciously. And the final thing is a question that I, I saw trending on Twitter, and I was like, wait, what? Do you think that the names Charles and Camilla were chosen by coincidence or to invoke the royals' names on purpose? Oh, yeah. I looked it up, and apparently the affairs were made public the same year this book was written, but I'm not sure if that's cutting it too close to be on purpose. Well, I think I, I think um, the year the book was published is different from the year that the book was written because I think obviously she was working on this for a very long time before. So if, if the affairs were came came about and uh, was revealed in 1992 i think probably has nothing to do with the the text that's just a happy coincidence i guess i think it's probably just like sort of rich sounding names yeah charlie like he's never like chuck or chip or even charlie chaz yeah he's just charles and she's camilla although he calls her um millie millie yeah but that's like when he's being playfully drunk and wants to have sex with her yeah and they also, like, there's a history, there's a familial history to the name Millie. Like, it's what their grandmother called her or something like that. Like, they, there's, like, a, 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 there's, a, there's, a, there's an explanation of why he's using mm-hmm. Millie. Like, it's just, yeah. So, thank you, Egg. Lottery at cageclub.me if you want to write in. Also, patreon.com slash lotterypod. Join our Bacchanalia. Yeah. Uh, there will be sex with animals. Nope. All right. No. <laughs> I guess. Uh, some people are yes men. Joey is a uh, Debbie Downer, a negative Nancy. We're at Lottery Pod on Twitter, and I just, I really hope. Today's crime is sex with animals.